You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of St. Patrick's Day Mayhem. Good morning, all, and happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Banakti Nafela Poregorov. As most of you know, I'm sure, St. Patrick's Day is our national holiday here in Ireland, our version of the 4th of July, and it commemorates our patron saint, who brought Christianity to the far-flung and desolate island at Europe's most westerly point, which was too wet and cold for even the Romans to invade. His arrival on our shores had a huge impact on the island and its culture, and today St. Patrick's Day represents all of that. I spent my childhood in the States, and it was always nice to celebrate Paddy's Day in school. We'd have green sugar cookies and do arts and crafts, and it always made me feel like Ireland was a really special place. When we moved back here home, going to the St. Patrick's Day parade was always fun, And in the last 20 years, the day has spilled into a nearly week-long festival. In my 20s, I worked at a national monument and spent my Paddy's days pinning fresh shamrock sprigs to visitors who came to watch the parade or maybe take shelter from the weather outside. It usually rains. Sometimes there's sleet and snow. You never know what it's going to do. But, of course, alongside that family-friendly festival is the drinking. Something I'm wholeheartedly behind for the most part, but binge drinking from noon has its downsides and its problems and its crimes, of course. When I was thinking about what I could do, given that today is the day, as it were, I thought I could easily fill an hour with the various assaults and crimes that happen in our cities and towns here on Paddy's Day. And I'm still going to talk a little bit about that. But I also thought that it might be interesting to see what kind of shenanigans have been going on overseas. Our people are our biggest export, after all, and Paddy's Day is celebrated around the world, often in much the same way as it is here. So I nudged a few friends in the podcasting world and asked them what kind of Irishy crime they could come up with, and whether they'd be willing to tell me those stories today. And thankfully, they agreed. So I've thrown away the rule book for this week, and instead of one story, you're getting many, from a few different voices. It's said that St. Patrick used the three-leaf shamrock to explain the idea of the Holy Trinity to the Irish, and it's since become an iconic symbol of the country, at home and abroad. And so, for our first story, this symbol will be our theme. Mm-hmm. 
Hello, Men's Rea listeners. My name is Shay, and I am half of the team over at All Crime No Cattle, a Texas true crime podcast hosted by myself and my wife Erin. When Sinead asked us to dig up something Irish or St. Patrick's Day related, I didn't end up finding much from the Lone Star State. I did, however, discover a case from one of our most southern cities, Corpus Christi. This is a tale that involves everything from a shamrock, terrible luck, knives, doppelgangers, and even a wrongful conviction with a tragic end. This is the case of the two Carloses. On All Crime No Cattle, we like to be sure to post all of our sources at the beginning of our episodes, and this episode I will be using an article from The Guardian, written by Ed Pilkington in 2012, as well as a book called The Wrong Carlos, written by James Liebman, published in 2014. So let's get into our case. Just over a month before St. Patrick's Day, on February 4th, 1983, good fortune was certainly absent, as that night, a frantic 911 call came into Corpus Christi Police. It was a report of a woman being brutally stabbed by a man with a knife at a local Shamrock gas station. The victim, Wanda Lopez, was 24 years old, a single mother, and worked late nights as a gas station clerk to make ends meet. Earlier that night, Wanda had been approached by a customer who was concerned, saying that a man was outside, acting strange and wielding a knife. Wanda decided to call the police and report the man. They told her, however, they couldn't do anything unless he came inside and began threatening people. Well, he did come inside the Shamrock gas station a few minutes later. Once inside, he made a beeline for Wanda, like he was on a mission. Another customer in the rear of the store witnessed what transpired next. According to Kevin Baker, he saw a man who appeared to be Hispanic rush into the store and then begin attacking the store clerk. He reportedly hid, thinking it was a robbery. After the attacker fled, he scrambled up and over to Wanda, and that's when he discovered she had been stabbed once through the left breast with an 8-inch locking buck knife. The knife laid near her body on the floor behind the counter. Wanda was in bad condition. She was losing large amounts of blood quickly. Kevin used the phone to call 911, and Wanda's cries and pleas for help were audible in the background during the exchange with the dispatcher. The knife wound Wanda sustained cut into an artery in her chest. A few minutes later, she would die at the scene from internal blood loss as paramedics quickly tried to save her life. Some 40 minutes later, after the stabbing in Corpus Christi, the police had arrested a Hispanic man named Carlos de Luna, who they found hiding under a pickup truck not far away from the gas station. Almost immediately, Carlos told authorities that he had in fact been at the gas station and witnessed the stabbing. However, he claimed he was innocent and not the man that they were looking for. According to Carlos de Luna, the murderer was a known acquaintance of his and was also named Carlos. He went on to explain that this other man named Carlos Hernandez also looked exactly like him, a doppelganger of sorts. De Luna said that he and Hernandez had actually been drinking together at a nearby bar. That was until Hernandez decided to step out and go buy some cigarettes. When Hernandez didn't come back, De Luna started to get worried and went over to the store, and that's when he saw Hernandez wrestling with a store clerk through the windows. At this point, he said he got terrified and ran. Corpus Christi homicide detectives weren't buying this, however. They claimed they had looked into this supposed other Carlos, but couldn't turn anything up regarding this man. Instead of forensic evidence, detectives used Kevin Baker's witness statements to positively ID Carlos De Luna as their assailant. 
DeLuna even took the stand during his later 1983 trial and told the jury this strange tale of a duplicate friend who actually did the murdering. The jury found this story of the phantom lookalike killer to be a weak defense. As a result, Carlos DeLuna was found guilty of the murder of Wanda Lopez and sentenced to death by lethal injection. And that's all there is to this story, right? Well, that's where you'd be wrong. In 2004, Columbia Law School professor James Liebman and 12 of his students began digging into Carlos DeLuna's case. Over the next six years, they interviewed more than 100 witnesses, used 900 pieces of source material, and unearthed enough evidence to fill over 400 pages in a special publication to the Columbia Human Rights Law Review. What did they find? Well, let's just say it was nothing short of staggering. A man named Carlos Hernandez not only existed, but he looked just like Carlos de Luna. And I mean that. They could have been identical twins. There's a picture that you can see in the Guardian article that I sourced earlier that compares several photos of the two different Carloses, and it is mind-blowing how similar they were. Hernandez was an alcoholic with a history of violence and even more telling, he was connected to multiple cases of murder, robbery, and deadly assault. In total, he was arrested 39 times, 13 of which resulted in charges that involved a knife. Most of these cases didn't get Hernandez locked up in jail, though, but instead returned long parole sentences and expectations and guidelines for good behavior. Liebman and his students dug through the crime scene evidence from the Shamrock gas station as well. They found some glaring problems in their search. Blood spatter analysis, blood samples, fingerprints, and even shoe impressions from the perpetrator had all been taken into evidence by forensic technicians. But on further inspection, they discovered that none of these pieces of evidence had been properly cared for or examined correctly by authorities. Liebman postulated in his book, The Wrong Carlos, if they had been, detectives would have easily deduced that DeLuna was telling the truth. Even DeLuna's clothes and shoes were bagged upon his arrest, but they didn't have a single microscopic drop of blood anywhere on them. Routine skin samples were not taken from Wanda Lopez's fingernails that night either. If they had been, and then compared to DeLuna, it could have been enough to exonerate him. The exhausting years of research Liebman's team put into this case showed a clear picture of wrongful conviction in a capital murder case. Several tip reports, days after the murder happened, even showed investigators had been warned they may have the wrong man. Several people mentioned that Carlos Hernandez was bragging around town that authorities had arrested his tocoyo, meaning someone who shares your first name, and that he likely was about to get away with murder. Even more worrisome was when Liebman found out that Carlos Hernandez was known to the Corpus Christi authorities and had received light paroles for his previous assault violations instead of those harsh sentences because he was in fact a police informant. Unfortunately for Carlos de Luna, he would spend the next six years on death row pleading his innocence and shouting Hernandez's guilt to anyone who would listen. His appeals came and went with no major change to his conviction. The result was that Carlos de Luna was put to death on December 8, 1989. He commented on a television interview a few years before his execution, saying, quote, Maybe one day the truth will come out. I'm hoping it will. If I end up getting executed for this, I don't think it's right. Carlos Hernandez, on the other hand, died of natural causes in a Texas prison in May of 1999. As it turns out, he found his way to prison for assaulting a neighbor with a nine-inch knife. 
Now I know all of this is troubling. It is to us too. If you'd like to hear the rest of the details in this case, which there are some fascinating ones I assure you, keep your ears peeled back for an upcoming full episode on our show All Crime No Cattle, where myself and my co-host Aaron will pour through the gritty details of the two Carloses. I think you'll enjoy what we found. You can find us on all major podcatching services, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and we're a conversational podcast that's half narration and half discussion of the cases. As we continue our search, though, to right wrongs in the justice system and learn from our mistakes, I'll leave you with this. When you're out partying on St. Patrick's Day, pounding your green beer, whiskey, and Guinness, just remember, stranger things have happened on nights like these just before the break of spring under the watching eye of a bright green shamrock. Take heed, my friends, and drink responsibly. And for my sake, please don't go out drinking with your doppelganger that night. You may end up paying the ultimate price. May the luck of the Irish be with you, and Slanche from the Lone Star State. Always remember that crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Thank you so much to Shay from All Crime No Cattle for taking the time to tell us the story of the two Carlosses. Honestly, you should look up the picture of the guys involved. It's insane how similar they look, and I can't wait to hear all the details. And from a case of mistaken identity to one where authorities were looking for young people to be identified by their peers after a riot in the college town of London, Ontario in 2012. It wasn't the first time that college parties had gotten a bit rowdy in the northeast of the city, which had a high density of student housing at the time. But on Paddy's Day 2012, things went completely mad. At about 10pm, the fire department was called out to deal with a minor brush fire, but they were met by a crowd of kids who had blocked their path. Police responded then, and by the time they arrived, the crowd numbered near to 1,000. The cops were pelted with bricks, bottles, and anything else that could be thrown. In the face of this huge crowd, the police were forced to withdraw. A news vehicle was overturned and then set alight. In the wake of the violence, 11 people were arrested, some of them immediately suspended from college, and there were appeals to identify more of the culprits through Facebook and Twitter. A lot of people who had taken part in the riots had posted about it online. Happy St. Patrick's Day, huh? The next college kids we're going to hear about, though, went to the trouble of at least attempting to conceal their identities. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of Southern Fried True Crime. I'm really excited for the opportunity to tell a small tale for one of my favorite podcasts, The Brilliant Mens Rea. Today I bring you a crime from my home state of Tennessee for Sinead's St. Patrick's Day special. And I apologize ahead of time for my atrocious Southern American accent. Bear with me, y'all. On St. Patrick's Day in 2010, a man dressed in a leprechaun costume held up a bank in Gallatin, Tennessee. Gallatin is a suburb of Nashville, about a half hour from the famed Music City. The man in the leprechaun suit was David Christopher Cotton. He was 20 years old and from Brentwood, Tennessee, another suburb of Nashville but a much wealthier area. 
He had a getaway driver with him named Jonathan Ryan Skinner, who was also from Brentwood and was a student at Western Kentucky University at the time of the robbery. David Cotton was first spotted walking into another bank minutes before. The manager at Fifth Third Bank watched the man warily. He was dressed in a tall black hat with a four-leaf clover on it, a black robe with green trimming, wearing a fake brown wig and beard with dark sunglasses. Cotton walked around nervously for a few moments and then walked out into the bank next door called First State Bank. And sorry, our bank names all sound alike and are confusing even to us natives. David Cotton walked calmly up to the teller at First State Bank, pointing a gun at her and handed her a bag telling her to fill it with money and to hurry up about it. She quickly complied and Cotton was seen running out of the bank just minutes later. But the bank next door had already sounded the alarm and the police were in hot pursuit. Patrol car video of the chase shows Cotton leaning out of the passenger window and firing several shots at police cars, disabling one of them. But a string of other police cars gave chase as the robbers fled down Belvedere Drive in Gallatin to Long Hollow Pike. The police chased them to the back of a subdivision called Cambridge Farms in Gallatin, where one of the guys shot at the police again. They finally ditched the car at the corner of Red River Road and Bradford Drive and took off on foot into a nearby field. Unfortunately, once cornered, Cotton and Skinner refused to surrender or put down their weapons. They were both shot to death. Police later said they believed David Cotton shot himself as they surrounded the pair in the field. Because bank robberies are a federal crime, the FBI was called in to investigate. Special Agent Scott Augenbaum told the Associated Press that when they searched David Cotton's home, they found a Santa Claus suit. It turns out, Cotton was responsible for robbing a SunTrust bank in Nashville three days before Christmas. I'm honestly not sure if the idea to rob banks on holidays dressed in the appropriate costume is idiotic or genius. If you think about it, you're not going to notice someone dressed as Santa Claus as suspicious around the holidays. Well, at least not civilians. I would think bank security guards would be on alert to anyone with their face covered up. But David Cotton had so far gotten away with that one. And think about it, a creepy-looking dude in a ski mask walking towards a bank will draw attention. But a Santa Claus, strolling down the sidewalk a couple of days before Christmas? Most people wouldn't even think twice. So this costume was pretty smart. But I think Cotton overplayed his hand dressing as a leprechaun and waltzing into a bank on St. Patrick's Day. It's not as though Americans, of Irish heritage or not, don't revel in this holiday and dress up and drink green beer till they puke. We do but we usually do it in the evening at bars or maybe at a parade. There was no parade that day, at least not close to the Gallatin Bank. So yeah, a dude walking down the street in a big leprechaun costume in broad daylight without a parade will turn some heads. The hat also made David Cotton over six feet tall, and he got spooked at the first bank, maybe noticing the manager watching him, so he walked next door, giving the manager time to call the police. And while a police chase and gunfight looks pretty cool in the movies, it was horrifying in real life. And these two guys were just young 20-year-olds. Their families were devastated. Cotton's family released a statement through a family friend that read, They loved their son as much as any parents love their children. They are thankful that no bystanders were hurt, and they give their condolences to the family of the other man. I saw a couple of papers mention that it wasn't known how Cotton and Skinner knew each other. Well, they were both from Brentwood, not necessarily a big city, and also not known for being an underprivileged community. The opposite, in fact. So what was their motive? Bank robbers tend to be career criminals, but these guys seem more like thrill-seekers. 
David Cotton had his own website where he described himself as always looking for a new adventure. He also uploaded a video to YouTube of himself with some homemade device he said he had invented to measure a person's good or bad vibes. He repeatedly pointed the device at himself and said he got a bad vibe reading while chuckling. So yeah, I think these were a couple of bored college kids, albeit college kids with some very grown-up gunpower. I do think they were in it for the thrills, though. And had they not gone out in a hell of gunfire, we might have seen the Easter Bunny holding up a Nashville area bank the next month. This leprechaun bank robber may have temporarily made off with his pot of gold, but when he was trapped, instead of granting three wishes, he and his partner chose violence, shooting at the police, losing their lives, and shattering their families. Ironically, leprechaun stories and fables are usually morality tales that warn against the folly of trying to get rich quick, to take what's not rightfully yours. Sadly, the tale of the leprechaun bank robber from Tennessee is a modern-day bloody incarnation of that centuries-old lesson. Thanks so much to Sinead for inviting me to share this story on Mens Rea. Again, this is Erica from Southern Fried True Crime. If you liked what you heard, check out my show, I specialize in cases from the American Deep South. Have a wonderful St. Patrick's Day, and best of luck to all of us with our Monday morning hangovers. Y'all take care. Well, that took a turn, didn't it? Thanks to Erica from Southern Fried True Crime for bringing us that story of an on-theme holiday robber with sunglasses. It didn't end too well for him, did it? And thankfully, it's a bank holiday here, so no banks open, and no need to worry about the hangover tomorrow. I at least will be able to watch the world spin from my bed. There's something about St. Patrick's Day that kind of has people out looking for trouble, though. Both at home and abroad, it seems like a good excuse to misbehave, and then from the harsh light of your hangover to blame the drink that you poured into yourself the day before. Looking a bit closer to home, in 2017, on Paddy's Day, there was an unprovoked stabbing in Longford Town. Now, Longford is a fairly small place. There's about 10,000 people living there, which makes up one-third of the total population of that county. It's rural, and there's not a whole lot there. But that evening, between eight and nine, three men set upon another. Vitor Vieira, who was originally from Portugal but has been living and working in Ireland since the early 2000s, was very seriously injured, apparently for no reason at all. The following year, two of the men who had attacked him, Brandon and Kieran McDonnell, were jailed for eight and six years respectively. These were long sentences for an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old. The judge in the case, Keenan Johnson, noted that it was one of the worst assaults he had dealt with in his time on the bench. It was totally unprovoked and occurred as a result of both drink and drugs consumed by the brothers that Paddy's Day. It's unlikely that drink or drugs played much of a role in the next story, and we're travelling back to Texas. So brace yourselves. This is Vincent from Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, and I'd like to thank Sinead and the listeners of Mens Rea for having me. Much contention exists as to how Montgomery County, Texas got its name. 
Either it was named by settlers who'd come there from Montgomery, Alabama, or it's the namesake of an Irish-born British soldier who defected to the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Montgomery County is due north of Harris County, which houses Texas' largest city, Houston. Its county seat is Conroe, which pales in comparison to Houston in population. Houston's constant growth, in fact, eventually affected Montgomery County when Houston's northward suburban growth invaded the southern portion. Regardless, Montgomery County has largely maintained its flush timberlands and Conroe its small country town charm and ease of character of the residents. In the early morning hours of March 17, 1983, hours before festivities celebrating St. Patrick's Day would begin, Conroe's idyllic and seemingly sheltered small-town repute would be challenged. At approximately 3 a.m., a Montgomery County, Texas Sheriff's Office patrol deputy slowed his vehicle along the northbound service road of Interstate 45 near League Line Road in Conroe. The deputy had noticed a flickering light just behind the tree line of the woods alongside the road there. Long-haul truckers often pulled their semis to this particular area to catch up on some presumably long overdue rest, so it was a routine area to patrol, but the luminous activity was certainly unusual. As he eased the patrol car closer to investigate, he observed that the fast and sporadic lights weren't a lantern or flashlight, but a fire. He left his patrol car to get a closer look and what the deputy found was gruesome. The charred body of a white female laid on the ground, engulfed in flames. The deputy quickly called for backup, and when they arrived, the scene was swept for clues. The only items found, though, was a souvenir ink pen from a 76 truck stop near her body, and the cap from a container of 15W40 motor oil on her stomach which investigators theorized was used as an accelerant for the fire. The medical examiner determined in the autopsy that the young woman had been badly beaten, raped, and strangled to death. There were no immediate leads pointing to who brutalized, sexually assaulted, and slayed the young woman. Sheriff's Office investigators, in fact, couldn't even identify the young woman, and she was listed as a Jane Doe. The Montgomery County Sheriff's Office wouldn't have to wait long for what they thought was the big break they were looking for, as it soon came in the form of a man known as the One-Eyed Drifter, Henry Lee Lucas. Shortly after his arrest in June of 1983, only three months after the young Jane Doe's body was found burning, Lucas began spewing his infamous confessions and the Jane Doe was among Lucas's seemingly endless admissions, fueled by his quest for infamy and what he would later call, after he recanted virtually all of his confessions, an attempt to make Texas law enforcement look like idiots, to paraphrase. His attempt at doing this may or may not have been a success, depending on who you ask, but police from all around Texas and many other parts of the United States were foaming at the mouth to tie Lucas to their unsolved and cold cases. 
Lucas traveled with police from location to location, providing details about his claimed killings, often prompted by police who, according to many, spoon-fed him details to refresh his memory, hoping that his confessions would clear cases in which conclusions had eluded them. He was already facing murder charges for the slaying of his underage girlfriend, Becky Powell, and his landlord, both which he originally confessed to after being picked up on a weapons violation. He surely knew these charges would stick, so being treated like a jet-setting rock star as he took police on a multi-state confession spree presumably seemed to Lucas like a much more enjoyable way to spend his incarceration. On October 5th, 1984, Lucas pled guilty and was convicted of the murder of the Jane Doe whose corpse was found burning in the early morning hours of St. Patrick's Day, 1983, receiving one of the several life sentences that would ultimately be stacked on him. For over three years, the young woman found just inside the woods off Interstate 45 in Conroe, Texas, remained a Jane Doe. On May 12, 1986, however, the FBI finally identified her by fingerprint comparisons as missing person Laura Marie Purchase. The 26-year-old was last seen on March 5, 1983, in Houston, where she lived with a man named Howard, or Howie, who played in a local Houston band called Malibu, and who is thought to have lived in a motel on the North Freeway. In 2010, Detective Thomas DeRoy of the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Squad reopened several of the cases in his jurisdiction in which Henry Lee Lucas confessed to and later recanted. Seminal fluid found on Laura Marie Purchase was tested for DNA. Lucas was not a match. Detective DeRoy believes that none of the other slangs which had taken place in the county during this period were carried out by the serial confessor, though he'd confessed all but one. To hear about the other victims, tune in to Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, and look for the episode titled The Montgomery County Killing Fields. Thanks again, Sinead, for including us on your St. Patrick's Day episode and for being our pal. We're thrilled and, quite frankly, honored to be featured on the incredible Mens Rea podcast. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much to Vincent from Gone Cold. That one was absolutely fascinating and so sad. Henry Lee Lucas gives me the heebie-jeebies. Even though he was more of a serial confessor than a serial killer, as you so nicely put it, he still has that kind of reckless madness about him. Confessing to all of those crimes and leaving that uncertainty for families is a truly awful thing to do. But more often than we care to admit, people do things to hurt others without giving a second thought to the effects of their actions. This kind of behaviour is often heightened on Paddy's Day, with people thinking that somehow, given the day that's in it, they can get away with getting stocious drunk and being violent. In 2014, Dublin City Centre was packed on Paddy's Day, as usual. The parade happens at noon that day, and follows a route from the north side of the city, at the top of O'Connell Street, down across the River Liffey, in front of Trinity College, and down Dame Street, finishing off at St. Patrick's Cathedral. That's right down along the busiest parts of the city, and mostly adjacent 
to the so-called cultural centre of the city, Temple Bar. At around 3pm that afternoon, a few teenaged boys with oversized green leprechaun hats on their heads and the Irish tricolour flag tucked into their shirt collars like capes decided to randomly attack a Brazilian student on Aston Key. There's a video of the attack taken by an onlooker on their phone which shows the young man receiving a number of flying kicks to the head. The gang of lads were screaming racial abuse at the man while he lay in the middle of the street and crowds began to gather, screaming for them to stop. Then the youths fled, their tricolours whipping around them as they ran off down the river. The video was uploaded to Facebook and quickly went viral in Ireland. People were horrified by what they saw, particularly with the last kick to the victim's head and the audible crack that accompanied it as he hit the concrete. Commenters said, quote, absolutely disgusting, made my stomach turn looking at this, end quote. And, quote, hard man attacking a defenseless man like that, end quote. Another said, quote, on a day we're all proud to be Irish and celebrating our culture and heritage and some little shit degrades our nation with his vicious behaviour, end quote. Followed by, I am horrified to think another human being could do this. Total and utter filth. End quote. Some of the boys involved took to Facebook in an attempt to defend themselves. Of course, after that, the guardie had a definite line of inquiry to follow. The following day, one of the boys presented himself at a guard station. When two teenagers, unnamed because they were only 17 at the time, appeared in the children's court the following year with their mothers in tow, they were directed to take part in a crime diversion programme run by the probation service. They'd written letters of apology to their victim. Gardy confirmed that the two had not come to their attention since the attack, and both were cooperative. Judge O'Connor warned them that if they didn't stay out of trouble and follow the probation service programme, they could face further punishment, up to and including time in prison. But he said, quote, it did not look like it would be necessary to do that, end quote. The story never made the news again after that, so one can only assume that the two lads made it to 18 without further incident, and can't help but think that their victim probably didn't feel terribly vindicated by the process of justice in this case. More often than not, Stories about crime have an unsatisfying ending. Judges and courts are often limited in what they can do to try and restore a semblance of balance, if things even get that far. And that's a feature of our next and final story. To cap things off, we get to hear about yet another awful crime with its origins around St. Patrick's Day. This one had a clear motive, however, and somehow made its way back to the homeland. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Whelan, and I am the host of the podcast Unresolved. Today, on the most Irish of days, I want to share with you a story that I find incredibly fascinating. That of Joseph Maloney. Joseph Michael Maloney was born in 1935 in Rochester, New York. He grew up working a series of dead-end jobs, including a stint as a custodian at the Rochester State Mental Hospital. When he was in his mid-twenties, he married a woman five years his junior a young lady named June. Together, Joseph and June Maloney did not fare so well. Their marriage was anything but happy, with Joe, 
as he was now called, quickly turning abusive, both physically and emotionally. For five or so years, June endured the abuse, but in March of 1967, right around St. Patrick's Day, she made the decision to leave Joe. She assumed custody of the couple's two children, and their split was anything but amicable. As you can imagine, this only resulted in Joe Maloney's mental state continuing to deteriorate. He began to think up something drastic, and soon turned to a friend of his, an amateur chemist that kept a small laboratory in his basement. Joe asked this friend for a poison that was odorless, colorless, and hard to trace, insisting that it was meant for a dog in his neighborhood, which kept digging through his garbage. Joe's friend knew what would work, methanol, also known as wood alcohol. However, Joe's friend refused to give this poison to him, suspecting that something else was going on. Unfortunately, that was not going to stop Joe Maloney. When his chemist friend was away on vacation, Joe was able to manipulate his house sitter into letting him into the basement lab, where he found the poison and was able to smuggle it out. A short time later, Joe Maloney found a time to use the poison. At his son's fifth birthday party, he was described as being on good terms with his estranged wife, June, but unbeknownst to her, he managed to slip the poison into one of her cocktails. The next day, June fell violently ill, and Joe was at her bedside all day long. He insisted that whatever it was, it was self-induced, hinting that his estranged wife had attempted suicide. But that did not pass the smell test for anyone, not June's friends, nor her family, or the police. June slipped into a coma for several days, and later passed away on June 5th, 1967. Roughly four hours after her murder, after her cause of death was revealed to be murder, via poison, Joseph Maloney was arrested and charged with her death. A few months later, in September of 1967, Joseph Michael Maloney was convicted of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, but pleaded insanity and asked to be committed to the Rochester State Mental Hospital, which, you may recall, was the same facility that he had worked at earlier in his life. Unfortunately, the authorities did not know about Joe's history at the mental hospital, and allowed his request to move forward. He was sent there, and less than two weeks later, he had managed to escape, having remembered at least one escape route. Following this escape, he would not be seen for more than half a decade. Fast forward to 1973, thousands of miles away, in Dublin, Ireland. There, a man named Michael O'Shea phones the police, claiming that his home had been broken into. Police arrive at the scene and begin documenting everything, but due to this being a burglary, need to obtain fingerprints from everyone involved, including the homeowners. The primary homeowner, Michael O'Shea, agrees to cooperate and gives up his fingerprints to the investigators. Unbeknownst to this man, his fingerprints were then forwarded to Interpol, the international organization that tracks criminals across borders. There, his fingerprints would reveal a shocking truth. Michael O'Shea, the man reporting a burglary in Dublin in 1973, was actually Joseph Maloney, a man that had escaped from a New York mental facility more than five years prior. In the years since, he had relocated to Dublin, changed his name, had begun working as a bartender, and had even remarried. He was living a completely double life, and had assimilated himself into the community he lived in. 
In fact, one of the officers that took his fingerprints knew him as Michael O'Shea and considered him a friend. Due to issues with extradition between Ireland and the US, there was really nothing that authorities could do. Joseph Maloney had been convicted of first-degree murder in the States, but he could not legally be arrested for that in Ireland. Over the next decade, authorities tried to figure out a fix for this, while Maloney continued to dispute his true identity, insisting that he was Michael O'Shea and always had been. It wasn't until 1984 that the law was changed, and authorities finally sought his extradition back to the US. More than a decade had passed since his identity had been revealed, and Joseph Maloney, now close to 50 years old, was finally arrested. He was physically identified by Rochester authorities, who flew over to Ireland to assist in the proceedings. All seemed to be set for his extradition, but then another set of roadblocks emerged. Due to a legal technicality, the Irish-American Extradition Treaty fell apart, and Joseph Maloney became a free man once again. Almost immediately, he disappeared, with many theorizing that he had made contacts with the Irish Republican Army since arriving in Ireland and they somehow assisted in his disappearance. Close to nothing has been reported about Joseph Maloney in the years since. Since 1986, there has been no record of him existing anywhere, leading many to believe that he managed to change his identity yet again. Perhaps he is even still out there, living as a free man, having escaped facing any punishment for the murder of his wife back in 1967. It is possible that Joseph Maloney, aka Michael O'Shea, is still out there somewhere. If so, he would now be in his mid-80s, and is still wanted by US authorities for first-degree murder. However, his story remains unresolved. I would like to thank the wonderful Sinead for asking me to participate in her St. Patrick's Day special. I cannot wait to hear the other stories from our podcast friends, and of course, I hope you all listening have a happy and safe St. Patrick's Day. Cheers. Well, it wouldn't be Paddy's Day without a mention of the IRA. Thanks for that one to Michael from Unresolved. What a crazy story. We'll all have to keep our eyes peeled for Joe Maloney. It may be that he's down the road right now watching all the tractors in the local village parade. So, all that's left for me to do now is to wish you myself a happy and safe St. Patrick's Day. Whether you're drowning the shamrock today or staying inside until all the madness blows over. And to my American friends, remember, no pinching Irish people if they're not wearing green today. We're exempt. And it's Paddy's day, not Patty. Patty is a Hearst. Or your friend's auntie. Or Doug's girlfriend. Slauncha. Agasgura Mahagwith. Aseishtak. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. Thank you to some recent reviewers over on Apple Podcasts. This time from Australia. We've had a lot of new listeners come to us through the Jill Maher case, so welcome aboard, guys. And thank you especially... To George Robinson, Scorpio Vic, Emmanuel885, Pat one Chris Leeds, Robin Gilbertson, and Sweet Deanna XOX. Thank you so much for your kind words, guys, and your reviews. They really do help. And welcome aboard to everyone who has joined us in the past month or so. 
This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Kate Walinga, Kevin, Kate Much, and Liz Meacham. Thank you so much for your support, guys. It's literally life-changing and keeps the podcast going. There are now up to two monthly bonus episodes available to patrons, as well as nifty merch and the glowing feeling of my undying love and appreciation. It all helps. Next time, we're back to our regularly scheduled programming for what I think may be the most horrific crime that I have ever covered. We're heading to Manchester in 1992. Please, please, if you haven't checked out All Crime No Cattle, Southern Fried True Crime, Gone Cold and Unresolved, you have to head over there and subscribe today. Not only are these excellent podcasts, they are genuinely the nicest people on top of that. So please show them your support. And I want to say thank you again to Shay, Erica, Vincent and Michael for agreeing to be part of this special episode. I owe you all a pint, though mine will be of gin, of course. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced in part by me, your host, Sinead. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Gorab Mahagwiv. Gorab Mahagwiv. Us Ashtak. Gorab Mahagwiv. Gorab Mahagwiv. Gorab. Gorab. Gorab Mahagwiv. Gorab Mahagwiv. Gorab. Gorab Mahagwiv. Gorab Mahagwiv. Gorab Mahagwiv. As. Us Ashtak. Gorav Mahagwiv Asteishak. Gorav Mahagwiv. Gorav Mahagwiv Asteishak. Agus Slancha. Gorav Mahagwiv Asteishak. Agus Slancha.